On December 25, 1913, the Swiss psychoanalyst Carl Jung entered a self-induced trance state and had a vision. After seeing two snakes engage in battle, he descended into the underworld where a giant serpent encircled him in her coils, squeezing him into agony. As the sweat poured from his visionary body, his face took the form of a lion. As one of his underworld guides told him, you are Christ. For Jung, this was his initiation into the mysteries, his self-deification, his quest into the underworld that would result in his individuation. In his first public revelation of this experience in 1925, he said, one gets a peculiar feeling from being put through such an initiation. The important part that led up to the deification was the snakes encoiling of me. The animal face which I felt mine transformed into was the famous Deus Leontocephalus of the Mithraic Mysteries. Almost 20 years before, in 1895, Young had engaged in similarly esoteric experiments, conducting seances with his cousins to converse with the dead, the start of his long interest in the esoteric and the paranormal. But his experiments in altered states of consciousness over the next 16 years, which he called active imagination, bore dubious results. At times he thought he was going mad. He would have entire conversations out loud with his feminine anima, channeling her voice. At times he was paranoid, prone to fits of anger, and difficult to get along with. He slept with a loaded pistol next to his bed, ready to end his life if he were ever to lose his sanity. But the experiences arguably did have an effect. His personality disintegrated and reintegrated into a new form, free from the repressions caused by Christianity, society, and civilization in general. He embraced polygamy and started a psychoanalytic movement that would be the precursor for the New Age movement. Today on The Truth Perspective, we'll be discussing the hidden side of Carl Jung. I'm Harrison Cayley, and joining me today are Corey Schenk and Elon Martin. Hello, everybody. Hi, everyone. So Carl Jung is widely regarded as a cool guy and a nice dude. Um, he's got almost the quality of sainthood when it comes to, well, I guess just anyone interested in New Age spirituality or just spirituality in general. He's got a good reputation, and that is one that has been cultivated and developed over the last hundred years. But there are some aspects to his teaching and his method and his life that have not gained publicity um, until basically the 90s. I guess some people have known about them, especially people who knew him personally, but the public record has been if not whitewashed, then just carefully uh, curated, mm -hmm. um, starting from, well, and he was the first person to start that, as we'll get into. And one of the ways he did that was in, a, um, in the language that he used in public um, for his various concepts and methods and experiences. And as we just heard, um, as I read out at the beginning, that was one of his experiences. Because when he talked about encountering the unconscious, I think most people with a, a passing, um, just a passing knowledge of Jung's ideas and his work have an idea of what is meant by uh, archetypes and the collective unconscious. And it takes the form of basically just um, like images and symbols. And basically that would translate into metaphor or allegory. So, oh, these are here are these symbols or images and archetypes, and this is what they mean, and this is what they represent. But uh, for Jung, 
they had a lot more life, let's just put it that way. So when he talked about an encounter with the unconscious, he basically meant... Uh, he basically meant having, uh, you know, going into an altered state of consciousness and interacting with, um, with aspects of the unconscious. Well, that's how he theorized it. But as actual kind of beings, like um, in last week's show, we were talking about, and the week before, we were talking about religious experience and um, how religious experience tends to get ignored by people who theorize about religion and um, <clears throat> spirituality and all those sorts of things. Well, this is. Jung was basically doing um, a, a version of what we were talking about last week. And so there are various aspects um, of, of Jung's life that, like I said, have remained um, relatively unknown um, for the entire 20th century. And we just discovered a couple books by a psychologist named Richard Knoll. Um, he's got two books out that he published in the 90s on Carl Jung. The first one's called The Young Cult, and the other one is called The Aryan Christ, The Secret Life of Carl Jung. And so we're going to be talking about some of the things uh, from his books and seeing where that goes. Now, maybe to start out with, um, I'll just mention a few things that, <clears throat> that came as a surprise to me that I hadn't heard about. Some have been like um, com common knowledge to uh, to a large degree, but um, you know I just hadn't heard it filtered through the the kind of um, popular level of uh, Jungian psychoanalysis that I've received over the years, just through reading like secondary works, um, people that reference him, you know, books <clears throat> just tangentially about him. So I hadn't actually read much of what he himself wrote, or you know any in depth biographies, or because there's a ton of of young material available, like uh, you know, just just his own works are probably thirty to forty volumes worth of uh, of material, and then of course all of this stuff written by his students. And so the few things that stuck out to me were, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, the his polygamy and his interest in um, parapsychology. Because I, I, I'd always kind of suspected that Jung would be into that kind of thing, but I'd never seen anything um, positively, you know, saying exactly that. Like, I knew that his first, like, his basically the, the thesis he wrote to become a professor was about so-called occult phenomena. And, but even in that title, so-called occult phenomena, um, you could see he was taking kind of a, um, the typical academic stance towards it. So I wasn't sure what he actually felt about it. I knew he'd, you know, corresponded with Wolfgang Pauli, the quantum physicist, and had written that little book on synchronicity. And he also wrote a little book on flying saucers um, being the myth of our time as kind of projections of the collective unconscious. But, um, but there was nothing in just the, the stuff that I'd seen to, to show that he had any kind of like real interest in it in the, in the sense that actual parapsychologists have an interest in it, as in this is like uh, serious stuff and we should t take a look at it and there might be some reality to it. Um, my impression of Jung is that there was a, he was always at like one one step like removed from it. He was always always approaching it from a distance. But um, one of the things that you learn in these books is that from a from a young age when he was like uh, eighteen or nineteen, he started um, having seances with a group of his family members, his cousins, and basically um, one of his cousins acted as the medium. And these seances, these sessions that they were having, 
became the raw material for that dissertation, that, that thesis that he wrote on so-called occult phenomena. And so for several years, he was reading everything he could on mediumship um, from like the Society of, Psych of Psychical Research in, in the UK. Um, so research into uh, telepathy and apparitions and mediums, physical and um, like trance telepathic, um, all, you know, the whole range of psi phenomena. And at the time it was called psychical research. Um, he was into all that kind of stuff until he came to the conclusion that, uh, that his cousin was, um, if not faking, then um, creating what seemed to be autonomous personalities um, that were constructed out of forgotten memories. So basically she was creating false personalities. <clears throat> and that the, so the beings that were coming through that she was essentially channeling weren't necessarily um, what they claimed to be, weren't necessarily real in the sense that he had assumed they were for, for the, you know, the time that he was doing these experiments. And then he went through a period of, of kind of skepticism like that um, before coming back to this, these kinds of phenomena af just like it, right after his break with uh, Sigmund Freud in 1913. Um, he had been very interested in mythology and archaeology and was you know, r reading everything he could on all, all sorts of world mythologies and, and Hellenistic mystery cults and, um, and all, of course all the, all the writings at the time um, that were searching for the kind of original Indo-European or Aryan um, religion. What was, you know, what was the religion of the, the, the peoples that, um, that were referred to at the time as Aryans that uh, ended up, um, you know, going over to India and Iran and, uh, and Western Europe. So what was the source of that and what was the nature of that religion? And so then after his break with Jung, that's when he started... Um, self-inducing trances like the ones that he had uh, that his cousin had been doing in uh, 1895 um, and afterwards and so he basically self-induced a trance where he would have these visions and then he ended up <clears throat> well at, um, very soon after he started keeping a journal where he wrote down all of his visions and his thoughts on them and by the, by, when these two books by Noel were published, that wasn't publicly available. Only, well, there were several kind of copies going around, but it pretty much stuck into the, in the Jungian community. And it was only in 2009 that the Red Book, as it's called, was published. And uh, we've got a copy of it, haven't read it yet, just kind of glanced and taken a look, but there's a lot in there. And so just before the show, I, I looked at and I read the, I read the vision that, uh, that I quoted from. And um, and it matched up with you know what he said about it in 1925 and the, the things that uh, that Noel quotes about it. So that's what I, that's just how I wanted to start out by saying that um, it was it was pretty it was kind of interesting to see how into um, like mediumship and the paranormal and channeling and and mythology and the level of reality that he gave the to mythological beings or archetypes like when he was having an encounter with the unconscious it was a real encounter like um um like there was there no real distance while he's having the vision like in the vision it's it's like a, a waking dream right he's having a he's conversing with um like elijah and salome and these snakes and they're all actual experiences that he's having um it's not just like a you know a fleeting thought or you know, a random image that pops into his mind, or even just a dream. 
these were like full-blown visions. Um, so just to start out with, I thought that was interesting. Well, uh, just to give a little background um, further about most people's experiences with Jung in particular, um, he, for any seeker of uh, spiritual truths, it seems that um, when you're when you're looking for good information, uh, he has a kind of a um, monumental uh, place uh, in in the realm of New Age spiritual uh, psychoanalytical thinking. Um, so these books have been very interesting to me uh, in not only deconstructing uh, Jung's thoughts and and those background influences in Germanic culture in Europe at the time, uh, but also who he was as, a, as an individual uh, and those things that he did uh, in his practice that um, seemed very questionable. Um, I would add that uh, you know, I've, I've had a, a bit of synchronicity at one point earlier in my life. It was undeniable. It was very strong. And... Um, it was something that drove me to try and read his book on synchronicity, which I found to be impenetrable, 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 <laughs> just like the word. Uh, I found it to be too academic and I put it down. Um, so in one respect, like you have all of these ideas that you mentioned, Harrison, that have become part of the uh, popular uh, lexicon of, of spiritual thinking and, and psychology, collective unconscious, the archetypes, uh, what have you. Uh, and in the other, there's this, um, uh, what I think is a, uh, a barrier to understanding a lot of uh, what he was about and what he thought uh, without his cadre of students and uh, his inner circle, who came out with a lot of books at a later time. Um, but uh, it has been very interesting to look at what his true influences uh, were, how he appropriated them uh, to create his own cosmology, his own religion, with himself as the, uh, as the head, as the godhead. And... Um, it's uh, it's been an interesting uh, reevaluation of of who the man was and what he's actually contributed to uh, to Western thinking and and religious thought. Yeah, I think that you know, there's one big question that when that I think everybody has when they're if they ever try and read Jung, and that's what the heck is he talking about? You know, it's like I know there's something there's something going on here. There's you know, I but I I kind of understand what he's talking about in terms of a collective unconscious, but when you read these books, you get it. It just it it reveals the fact that Jung was um, he was be, he was playing some word games. He was being slightly deceptive, and what he was really doing when he was crafting all of these things was one thing was he was stealing ideas from his patients, or not stealing them, but co-opting them. And another is that he was taking the New Age German Romantics uh, mythology of you know the you know the 18th 19th century that you know thought of the that considered the land of the dead to be uh, a real a real phenomenon that you know worshiped you know so-called german 
hereditary gods and the Aryan race, and he was taking that and he was he was putting it into the psychological literature as as terms like the collective unconscious, the archetypes, and purposely trying to uh, attack really the the Christian foundations of of the Western civilization, really trying to erode those foundations so that you could get to that Germanic barbarian spirit that you know that that hereditary spirit, that unconscious that isn't that has no uh, Christian overlays, no repressed sexual emotions. Um, and as he was doing that, I think that you get the you you really see the just the ethical flaws, the flaws in his character from a very, very early age, like when Harrison discussed his work with his cousin, um, using his cousin as a medium, she was, it wasn't, it was damaging to her health. It, her family was terrified of what uh, was, she was going through. She was exhausted. She was sick. Her parents uh, demanded that they stop the mediums, and he, but he was, of course, furious at that early age about them stopping his you know, experiments into the land of the dead. And as he, you know, went on and became a psychiatrist and worked at the at a as a clinician, he he achieved some fame for um, for his word association or word association experiments, and he was establishing himself as a young professional, and then met up with Freud, and then through Freud and the psychoanalytic uh, movement, he saw and he saw his chance to to take those early ideas that he had about the land of the dead and his his you know, so-called spiritual uh, learnings and to apply them in this way and create that new religious movement. And I think that's what people sense when they read Jung's book is that, oh, this guy, this is a guy who, who he's really talking about spirituality and he's really talking about these other realms and you get a sense that he's, you know, he's, he really wants to bring uh, religion back to the masses and to replace materialism. And in some sense, he is, but it's not the religion that you want. It's not your good old-time religion. It's the crazy, ecstatic, orgiastic, barbaric, Dionysian religion with spirits that will use you and eat you up and leave you, <laughs> and leave you wounded and dead. You know, Cut the to the chase, Gory. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, but yeah, that's, that was the, that's the, just my, just my general, general takeaway. Well, just a quick comment about his cousin. Um, it seemed to me, uh, from one of the descriptions of her, her channelings or, or uh, her mediumship, that the personalities or beings that she was um, uh, channeling uh, knew things and said things that would have been very uh, unusual for someone who was a teenager, even with an incredible imagination. Uh, so I, I believe Jung in later years said that, uh, you know, chalked up the whole experience to her being hysterical. And, um, it, he did this, well, she admitted it at some point that later on in her, uh, channelings that she, that she had indeed made up some things because she was, she felt that she was fading and, and losing her, her abilities to, uh, to be a medium. Um, but, uh, it, it just seemed like he was, uh, fickle in his, uh, in his assessment of, of what it was she was actually doing and experiencing. And, 
it, it felt as though, and I could be wrong in this assessment, that he had thrown her under the, the bus in, uh, in, in choosing to write off her experience as hysterical, uh, which is interesting because for, for much of his life, if not in hidden ways, he was affirming uh, the possibility of, of these types of you know, valid uh, mediumship experiences. So that, that to me was just um, an inkling into his, um, uh, his going back and forth between being a man of science and rationality, so-called, and, and, uh, but also trying to affirm this life of the, of the soul and, and the unconscious and, and its connection to the hidden or the occulted. I'm going to read just a few, just one paragraph from Noel's book. This was from, he's talking about the early part, that part of Young's career, well, before his career even, <clears throat> um, when he was going to med medical school. Um, so this is Noel writing. He says, There is no doubt that during his medical school years, Young believed in the potential of human beings to communicate with discarnate or otherworldly entities. Yet, his, yet the usual grounding of spiritualist practices in Christian beliefs left him cold. His disillusionment with Christian dogma and rituals fueled his skepticism about the veracity of the all-too-Christian messages that were usually sent from beyond the grave. Could there be a non-Christian spiritual world? And if so, what would this say about the true nature of religion and its place in the everyday lives of human beings? How could the monotheism of his own Judeo-Christian Christian civilization be reconciled with the evidence of a polydaimonic spirit world? And what would the greater implications of such evidence be for the nature of human, of individual human existence? His relentless curiosity about these questions in his early 20s led him along some unusual paths. So, I mean, I read that and I said, well, wow, those are good questions. The way I see Jung in this period is that he, like, he was a very curious guy. He was interested in these sorts of things, which many are. I mean, all the, every parapsychologist probably had the same kind of a, uh, you know, yearning for for understanding what the nature of reality was, and especially when you read any any of that old psychical research stuff, I mean, there's nothing but questions because undoubtedly there's genuine phenomena going on, and that's what's been uh, that's been the the conclusion of I'd say you know the majority of people that look at it, even um, even really rigorous scientists. That's why there are so many. Well, that's why pretty much all. Genuine parapsychologists are actual scientists um, because there's there's something going on, and so Young started out and he he had good questions, and he he started this this little experiment, which I think could have gone in any number of directions. Now, what happened is he went to medical medical school, and I think his you know his professional ego it looks like got in the way, and so he adopted the language of of psychology at the time to to write off these experience, experiences. And he, of course, you know, he, had, he had some justification in writing them off just from, um, well, he, had, he kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater when he, when he realized that some of these personalities coming through couldn't possibly be real. And that's the conclusion that most parapsychologists come to when they, well, the ones with a, a critical mind. Because when you look at all the channeled material out there and all the, all the medium all the mediumistic seances and all the kind of dead dudes that come through, some of them just seem fake. It's really kind of rare to find a really good, what they call, evidential case. There's just a lot of muck in there that seems to be just creations of the, 
of the unconscious in the way that psychologists think of the unconscious today, not necessarily the way Jung was thinking of it. So, so Jung writes this, uh, this dissertation where he, he um, writes it all off to hysteria, which, uh, which again was uh, a, common, a common stance to take among the, the professional psychological community. I mean, there were several that, that um, wouldn't necessarily have, have written it off completely, um, but I think they had a bit more integrity um, and well, when they were older too, like uh, William James was really into parapsychology or psychical research. He founded the the American branch of the of the Society for Psychical Research in you know in the U.S. <clears throat> and there you know there were several others, but um, but Young, it's hard to get a grasp on what was actually you know really going through his mind this whole time, because even when even when I was reading these just a couple excerpts from the Red Book. Um, I don't think that Noel is entirely correct in his assessment when he says that uh, that, that Young had basically three masks um, that he that he used constantly, and one was that he he act, he really believed in the reality of these these um, like Germanic gods, the pagan gods, and that the that his psychological language was just a mask for public consumption, and that he only used Christian Christian terminology as another mask, and that he then used his kind of professional psychoanalytic persona as a third mask when what he was really doing was initiating his, his analyzans or patients into the, the ancient mysteries. Um, I don't think it's that cut and dried because even in his private journals, um, he'd still use his own, his own language. It's like he, either he really believed that the, I think it, it might have been more of a both and scenario where he, uh, like, you know, in this, in the deepest part of his of his being, he he realized the reality of, uh, or he he thought there there was a reality to the archetypes as gods, but at the same time they that they were somehow psychological in nature. Maybe there, there's some they're like in, intrinsic, intrinsically intertwined in some way. I don't know, but um, but I don't get the impression that it was like uh, that he was being completely devious in his language. That uh, that there that maybe to um, maybe a way to put it would be that he he'd bought his own propaganda. That might be one way to put it. Or maybe he thought that uh, that there you know there was a psychological and a metaphysical reality to the things that he was um, that he was investigating. Yeah, I think that you can maybe you can look at his career. You can look at uh, his his like you you would maybe say he had some truth seeking um, drive. Then he was looking for information about the spirit world and he was gathering and you know he read volumes and volumes about uh, ancient myths ancient uh, religions and rituals and he was a, su a successful clinician but he also as you can see in his just the way that he treated like especially the way that he treated his cousin and the way he he published a paper in order to advance himself that shattered her life her you know her fiance broke up with her after the paper was released even though he used a pseudonym everyone in the family knew exactly who he was talking about his family and in fact i mean when he wrote that paper he had to have known that i mean his mother his great his mother's father that whole side of the family was very much into mediumship they're the ones who taught him those skills and he for them it was just a slap in the face to his family which, you know, you can say, well, that's basically what are you going to do if you become a clinician? But he, he had choice. 
he had a choice and he you know he published that information he used his cousin as a test case and her life was pretty much ruined after that and it doesn't seem like he ever made any attempt to remedy that situation or to um to reach out to her but so you have this uh this character defect right and you're you're trying to advance into these unknown realms of the spirit and yet you have these huge blind spots and you know as he's going along and he's gathering all this information and it doesn't it doesn't seem like he's getting any positive any good feedback he hooks up with freud and then um he meets somebody that i think we should talk about is that otto gross mm -hmm. uh one of the uh, somebody who ends up becoming one of his patients um this otto gross is a basically he was a drug addict he was a bohemian he was uh addicted he read you know nietzsche and he's basically just this this new age psychotic uh but he didn't start out that way he started out as the he was the son of a famous criminal uh, criminologist one of the guys who started out the whole trend of analyzing criminology scientifically and so it was just you know rather i guess ironic that yeah. his son became <laughs> such a random uh, criminal but he started out on a professional track and so then he got hooked up with freud and he became a psychoanalysis uh, psychoanalyst for the bohemian crowd so he would just, you know lodge himself in cafes and enrapture people by you know they just getting rid of their repressions and his his whole shtick was uh, based around the idea that that Christian uh, Christianity, modern Western civilization, capitalism, all of it was just this, we, we couldn't live within it. We don't have the, we're not evolved to live in that kind of an atmosphere. We need to just be able to do whatever we want and make love to whoever we want to. And he was admitted to uh, the Berglosi or whatever the name of the, the clinic that Jung started at. He was admitted there once, um, and then he got out, and then he was admitted back into this clinic when Jung uh, was really kind of at the height of his powers there, I believe. Mm -hmm. And he, um, so then Jung ended up giving him psychoanalysis. And this, it sounds like just from what Jung had to write about in his diaries was that this was the most challenging experience of his life because this guy was nuts he was they were still giving him drugs he was just climbing the walls he was you know he's trying to proselytize everyone to his uh point of view but towards uh but by the time it was over you know i can't remember exactly how long that it was, young it wasn't very long i think it was just it might have even been a year or less yeah just it wasn't that long but by the time it was over uh young uh said that his experience um, helped him to discover many aspects of his true nature so that he often seemed like, so this gross seemed to Jung like his twin brother, except for the dementia. So mm -hmm. at that point in time, I'm, you know, and just discussing Jung's character, it seems like he, he was dealing with uh, some of the most, the, some of the craziest people. <laughs> they were, it was just a, the place was to, to analyze and to study uh, schizophrenia and all and you know drug addiction and all of these things and he he was steeped in that and then his he couldn't maintain those boundaries and you know that and in some way the auto gross i think successfully proselytized Jung over to his point of view to his worldview he was basically like hey come on man why are you you know why do you just have a wife you need to be mm -hmm. polygamous and it was after that point that young then like he said he discovered many aspects of his quote-unquote true nature and 
things started to go downhill uh, after that, even, even though before that it wasn't looking that great. Either. Well, but with his, when he was engaged in analysis with uh, Otto Gross, he would, um, he would be giving, sending Freud rosy reports like, oh, it's going great and, and he's almost cured or, you know, we just need a few more sessions and we've had great success. At the same time, you know, Gross, there, there was no success going on. Like, I, Gross was probably, if not a psychopath, then he was just a very deranged individual. And um, I think he might have even, might even have been a psychopath just based on the, the, the few excerpts that, uh, that Noel includes. Of course, it's hard to tell just from a few, but he really seemed to have, like, the gift of gab. And he would be, he would proclaim his, his, um, um, what's the word his his healing like he'd gotten over everything oh it, it worked you know i'm great don't worry about me and then he'd and then he'd show then he'd tell all his long-term plans and it just sounds exactly like any psychopath in a in a so-called therapeutic environment that just tells the therapist exactly what they want to hear and then tells about all the great things they're going to do and then and and then gross escapes from the the clinic and just goes on a drug binge and uh, disappears for a while and then he, they they find him he's dead right he's like well, dead they, in an no, alley they, right they, they thought he was dead at first um there were reports of his death and but the 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 people involved in the clinic said oh no well he'll show up again and it, it then he did show up again somewhere and he died like several years later um so yeah interesting guy but when they were doing the analysis he, I don't. I can't remember if he told Freud this or not. But what actually happened was that Gross would then analyze uh, Young. So here you have this drugged out, crazy person, you know, analyzing uh, his, which you know should be his therapist or his psychoanalyst. I don't know if you can really call psychoanalysts therapists because they're really weird. Um, I, I don't really think it's a, a real type of therapy. But um, but anyways, so so Gross was analyzing Young, and you can only imagine you know what was going on there to the extent that that he basically converted young so you can we well, can kind of guess the direction it went to is that gross basically laid out his philosophy and he was probably like most psychopaths really good at um, finding the weaknesses in people and exploiting them and so he probably would have been able to see the conflicts that young was having about his um you know his sexual desires and urges because he liked you know he was he was um really into one of his patients, right? The Sabrina Spielrein. Mm-hmm. Um, and right after this is when he started his relationship with her. Um, well, can, well, they had a, a relationship of sorts beforehand, but this is when he kind of succumbed to his, to, to the, to the, to the urge. And, and that's when the, the, any kind of inhibition kind of was eliminated. So, um, because Otto Gross's motto was repress nothing. And he meant that, you know, literally. And um, his whole philosophy was what philosophy. He saw psychoanalysis as, you know, a method of, of liberation and cultural liberation, you know, where people would get rid of their old prejudices. And um, so, like Corey, you were saying, he was, funnily enough, he, you know, in today's uh, political climate, he was anti-patriarchy. Because even back then there was a, an, you know, not the, the feminism we see today, but there was a... Um, uh, a view of history and of contemporary civilization as being patriarchal and that there was uh, prior to like, you know, two phases back in civilization because they had this kind of stage model of, of civilization that there was a matriarchal cu- culture where, and the idea was that the back in that culture, there were, there were, there's no sexual repression. 
everyone just was sleeping with whoever, whomever they wanted. And, you know, no, no mother knew the father of her child because they were all just sleeping with each other. And there was no like civilizational um, enforced monogamy, uh, you know, as we'd call it today. Um, so, and he was also into uh, like, well, a lot of the psychoanalysts were into like sex role reversals. So Jung was doing that too. So basically a way of like, you know, so a man would, would, um, um, like, you know, affect a, a, a feminine persona in order to bring out the feminine and vice versa. And it was all a way of stripping away the generations and generations of, of Christian programming to get back to the, the true animal nature um, that humans have. Because um, Gross's idea, and he wasn't alone in this, was that <clears throat> um, the basically human nature at its root was, well... Well, um, like licentious, um, like free sex was basically the, the, the natural state of humanity and any kind of um, strictures placed on human sexuality were, um, were negative in nature and a bad thing. And you can, you can, see, the, um, you, you can see that in Freud's theory a, a bit. You know, I'm not totally familiar with Freud, so I'm not sure exactly where he was on um, his kind of moral stance on all this and what he thought, you know, humans actually should be. But basically, you know, the ego are, is, um, or the superego is what clamps down on, um, is it the ego or the id? But basically those, the id. the id, those kind of primal urges. And that's a, that's, that's a, a repressive, that, that causes repression. Mm -hmm. And repre repressions are a bad thing. And so for gross, repre all, all repression was bad. You should repress nothing. So if you could just get rid of all of those all of those social um, social programs on your own nature, then you would be free. And so his idea of a free human would be one that is just openly um, polyamorous, again, to use a, a current word, um, sleeping with whomever. And, and But really, um, you, I can imagine that back then there were a lot of people that were involved in the psychoanalytic com community that didn't necessarily have his total philosophy, but you can see the seeds of it in psychoanalysis. And Gross basically just said, oh, that's, you know, I can, I can use this. This is, perfect. this is the perfect framework for my, for my actual philosophy. And it worked. You know, it was a, a match made in heaven, so to speak, where he could easily get across his philosophy by pointing out that, yes, um, all of these um, social regulations that we or sexual regulations that we place on ourselves and the society places ourselves on ourselves are just repressing our natural sexuality and arguably that is the case of course but his position was that that was a bad thing and that there was no benefit to that and that the goal therefore of psychoanalysis would be to get rid of those um those inhibitions um and to to just let loose and that seems to have that, that seems to have been one of the big turning points in Young's life because there are a lot of points in this book where um, um, Young would express the following sentiment in in various situations and that would be just like um, just give in to the process right just give into it don't don't fight it you can see that in his approach approach to sexuality and also in his approach to these experience these visions these visionary experiences that he had which he called active imagination where He'd say, you know, in, in some of his private writings and letters and his um, conversations with um, colleagues and patients, he'd basically say, well, this is very dangerous, you know, it's a, you know, bad things can happen, you can even die from it, but 
um, but but you but some people can survive it. Basically, he survived it you know, in his mind, and all you had to do was you, you had to go along with it. You, have, you just had to go with it, and I think that right there is is for me what seems to be Jung's kind of fatal flaw, the fatal flaw in his personality, to just go with it. Um, it, did, it seems like he didn't have enough of a, um, if not critical mind, then a, a cautious, uh, a cautiousness to him, um, because he 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 well he basically went into the forest blind, without knowing what kind of monsters were there and without knowing what kind of protection he'd have to bring with him. He was encountering these things anew, and um, like a babe in the woods. And so when he'd have these experiences, he didn't know what to expect. He didn't know if there were, no, he didn't know the rules of the game, basically. He didn't know what, what he could possibly encounter, what the nature of what he could encounter, encounter and um, what kind of um, like barriers to put up in his mind to, to prevent um, like anything bad from happening. It seems to me that he thought that as long as he didn't die or, or go crazy by his estimation of crazy, then it was a success. And... That seems to be exactly what he thought, because the nature of psychoanalysis for him, like his own breed of of um, Jungian psychoanalysis involving you know archetypes in the collective unconscious, was that this this kind of visionary experience was a necessity. So in order to achieve individuation, which was his kind of goal for for the individual, you had to have an experience like this. In other words, if you didn't have an experience like this, you would never individuate, and, you know, to use his terminology. And that right there is another kind of what I see as a fatal flaw in his theory and his practice, that he thought this was an absolutely necessary step. And, that basic, and so he, he basically, what he ended up doing was recreating these ancient mystery um, initiation rituals like you were saying, you alluded to Corey, like he, he recreated this. And then like the way that the ancient mystery religions worked was that the, the, they were voluntary first of all. So it's not, it wasn't like a, a necessary part of the religions of the day. It was kind of like you, you were, you all had the, your, your religious cults that you were a part of and the gods that you worshiped. And, but if you wanted to, you could be initiated into one of these mystery religions. And, the way that worked is that the the rituals were basically um, a, a recapitulation of the story of the that religion's god, and so it might be a procession, um, you know, through the streets, or kind of like a pilgrimage, or um, you know, a descent into the you know a, a, the cave to to be initiated into to to recreate the the descent of the god into the underworld, and to and Jung recreated this by by creating a system where his students would then, and his patients would then have to recreate his own experience, which was this descent into the underworld and this self-deification where he, you know, he transformed into, into the Mithraic god. And, um, and that is, that's really the biggest thing that irked me about um, the way, or, or just about his kind of psychoanalysis in general, is that he saw this as the, the epitome of basically human development. And that just seems totally wrong-headed to me because you can see this, uh, well, you can see this in all sorts of um, religions and kind of personal philosophies where the people, um, the people who adopt them and enter into these, go, basically go on these paths is that they have this kind of, this idea that this event that happens in their lives will then 
basically save them. So you were in one category before, and then you're in the, the chosen saved category afterwards. And you can see this like in fundamentalist Christianity, where all you have to say is, you know, I proclaim Lord Jesus as my savior, and then you're saved. And, and that's it, right? There's no change in, in your actual character. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what the mystery religions were, was basically like a change of mind, literally, like your mind changed. And um, so, well, again, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, that arguably did happen in Jung's case, but you can change, you can either go higher or you can go lower. Right. And Jung didn't seem to be aware of that. He thought that the only way you could go lower was to descend into madness. But he didn't see that you could, you could have a change in personality, but you could take the wrong path, basically. Like, mm-hmm. you don't need to be, um, like, you can be a saint or a demon without being mad, um, just to use extremes. Like, um, you can be a jerk or a, a nice person, you know, without being insane, without being crazy. So what Young essentially did was create this system that was based on a, an experience that, first of all, probably isn't necessary for actual, you know, character development or base, or whatever the goal of human life is. It doesn't seem that the, the type of experience he had is a necessity. He thought it was. And therefore, he put, you know, he, he would actively put people through it and try to get them to recreate his own experience or an experience like it. When, you know, it seems, uh, seems shady to me, <laughs> to say the least. Well, Maybe Hades. Just a couple of things here that might uh, make clear what his background was. Um, his father was a, a kind of a failed figure. He's a pastor, uh, Paul Young. He, um, he was marked by illness and uh, wasn't particularly successful as a pastor, as a Christian, uh, in his town, financially, uh, with his wife, didn't have a great relationship. Um, his grandfather, Carl Jung the Elder, uh, was a... Um, was the director of a of a um, academic institution. I think he was also a physician. He was widely known. He was very well established. Um, so, in part, I, I think that Young's kind of relentless search for these uh, alternative religious uh, explanations and and ways of evolving in life and and getting ahead were a reaction to his father's failure, and a kind of striving for this, um, this stature that his grandfather had. Now, the background of, uh, of Europe at the time, uh, and the United States for that matter, uh, Harrison, you mentioned um, all of these, uh, all of these um, organizations, William James uh, in the U.S. You had uh, Madame Blavatsky in, in the late 1800s with her Theosophical Institute. You had a huge resurgence uh, in, in, the, uh, in the mystical, in the, uh, in the, the kind of um, mythic uh, Aryan um, uh, development of, of human beings uh, at the time in Europe. And so it, it just seems to me that Jung was absolutely determined as a, uh, just, as a, just as a person who, on a very mundane level, uh, wanted to create a name for himself, to 
look to all of these different, um, even if he was also curious about it and, and, and uh, wanting to assimilate knowledge on these subjects, he, was, he wanted to uh, unify, uh, codify, bring all of these ideas under the umbrella of Jungism, uh, of his own religion, with him as the head, um, and uh, just getting back to that point about uh, Freud's idea on sexual repression, uh, you know, Freud had this idea of the return of the, the repressed. So uh, you repress your sexuality and it comes out in all kinds of neurotic ways. Now publicly, Jung would, would come out to say that he disagreed uh, that neuroticism or, or spiritual issues um, came to sexual repression, and yet in his private life, uh, you know, in that description of Otto Gross and how he, he kind of ponderized Jung, he, he came to accept all of his, um, all of his urges as something that should have been um, satisfied and, and, uh, and taken care of. Um, so uh, he was just full of contradictions and ambition that I think made him uh, careless and um, and kind of um, very aggressive. Uh, there have been descriptions of him uh, in his work with the Bloiler Institute, which is uh, earlier in his career. Uh, this was an institute where they were taking care of patients on a day-to-day basis. And um, Noel at one point describes him as, as kind of brutal and uh, how straightforward he was with some of his patients. Um, so there's this, uh, this brute force of nature about Jung that, um, that kind of suggests that he was not really in service to patients so much as he was his own uh, self-aggrandizement and career. Yeah, I'd say he, he didn't have a backbone. He, that guy, did when it came to, you know, like uh, actually having like a solid character and you know caring about one's family and caring about the just caring about other people sacrificing yourself suffering uh when it came to that he was willing to do anything uh, to even giving himself up to the gods uh quote unquote in order to achieve some sense of ecstasy you know he he seemed on some level like an addict in that sense and a lot like a, a lot like Otto gross uh, because like you said, uh, you're talking about the, you know, the ancient mysteries and all the, the, the environment that was leading up to, to Jung, um, the Ger- Germany in the 19th century and the early 20th century. And that was the, uh, all of that fervor about the Aryan blood and the Aryan gods and the, um, this, this idea of rebirth, um, was what led up was was a powerful force in the rise of the Nazis, and that is the the kind of element that Jung was really drawing from in order for to get his inspiration um, for this uh, for this mythical world that he was uh, exploring, that he was you know, and then kind of codifying in his therapy. Uh, I have a just one note. Uh, that Jung wrote, uh, just kind of an excerpt from something he wrote to Freud in 1910 before that kind of led up to their breakup. Uh, The split between Freud and Jung was, you know, it's been kind of classified, you know, if you're pro-Freudian or whatever, then you see Jung as being uh, this crazy religious nut. But if you're uh, anti-Freud, then you see Jung as 
being you know more sane and pursuing a more rational route but it turns out that they were both fairly they were both right no matter which camp you're in if you you know they were both to blame um they you know they were bo they weren't blameless neither of them uh so Jung wrote to freud in 1910 he says um i think we must give psychoanalysis time to infiltrate into people from many centers to revivify among intellectuals a feeling for symbol and myth ever so gently to, to, to transform Christ back into the soothsaying God of the vine, which he was, and in this way absorb those ecstatic instinctual forces of Christianity for the one purpose of making the cult and the sacred myth what they once were, a drunken feast of joy where man regained the ethos and holiness of an animal. That was the beauty and purpose of classical religion. Now, in that sense, you see what really the driving force, the aim, um for young was this was a reversion was a regression back into this you know a primitive a more primitive time because of the quote-unquote repression because you know it, oh it hurts to only to have you know enforce monogamy hurts mm -hmm. <laughs> you know so let's let's go back to a, a a better time and that was the mythos of the culture at the time it's understandable it wasn't i don't know if it was necessarily the dominant mythos but it definitely those romantic tendencies were were extremely strong, stronger than a lot of, uh, obviously, the, the Christian, and it only got worse uh, over the course of the early 20th century uh, with the World War, the First World War. But that was in 1910 that he wrote that. That was a couple years after he had analyzed and been analyzed by Otto Gross, and it was after he had started having an affair with one of his, uh, with that Sabrina Spiel. Sabrina, I believe. Yeah, Spielrein. Spielrein, which she, it, it, there's some shadiness there. He may have stolen some of his ideas about the archetypes from her. There's um, allegations that he stole a lot of ideas from her. And then after that, he had a relationship in that same year with a 22-year-old woman who came to his home to receive analysis. Uh, her name was Tony Wolf, and she would end up having a relationship with him for more than 40 years to the extent that his wife would know about it, but he he would have Wednesdays, I believe it was. He would go spend time with her for uh, on Wednesdays, um, devoted to his uh, polygamous affair with her. And of course, his wife didn't really like it. She was obviously towards the end of their life. She would she would publicly berate him, um, or she would be, she would she wasn't always very po uh, polite towards him for obvious reasons. But that. Uh, yeah, that's the trajectory that he was going on there. And eventually, towards the end of his life, Richard Knoll discusses the fact that he built a tower, a tower um, within which he would conduct his sexual liaisons with uh, the, you know, whatever women that he, I think Tony Wolf was the, was the principal uh, woman in that, you know, in his escapades or whatever you call it. But um, yeah, the, that sexual... Uh, Dionysian sort of insanity was was taking was taking hold of him then in 19 you know from 1910 to 1913 and then as you discussed in the beginning of the show Harrison in 1913 he then um, he had that experience where he went and he met with the quote-unquote uh, Aryan God the ion his his quote-unquote self um, and then was anointed the Aryan Christ or whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. after that then you um, by 1915 
then you see that Jung is starting to guide his patients onto that same path um, and really using the same techniques that he used, uh, active imagination, uh, drawing, analyzing your drawings, analyzing your paintings, um, free association, basically just dissociating from the world in order to achieve individuation through rebirth. And that, again, that rebirth is... It hinges on a giving of yourself up to unknown forces that he, I mean, to trust just anything willy-nilly. These people trusted Jung, and he betrayed each and every one of their trusts by leading them on this path to give them, to, on the altar of sacrifice, really, to some, to any, I mean, for a man like Jung, who had his, such an open mind and to be so aware of these different forces to not even to not even think that some of them would be negative mm -hmm. and use people but by that point he was used by that point he had been corrupted by yeah, i mean by 19 yeah by 1915 you really you can see it that he is like you said Elon he's really he's abusing his patients one of them her name was uh Fanny i can't remember what her last name was but her name her uh, first name nickname was Fanny and she had uh, she had a heck of an experience with Young, where he he would abuse her. Um, he would uh, verbally abuse her during sessions uh, to the point that she she started to have an emotional breakdown. And her brother or her cousin was a very high up fish or a high up uh, academic in the U.S. And he even told her, said basically, just said, "Get away from get away from him." He's he's a bad guy. You don't want to go through it. He he was originally he pro. Young. He didn't go that far. Well, well he, maybe by he did he by the end. Yeah, yeah. By the end, he basically he okay. was writing to her and saying, "Don't show these letters to Young. I don't want Young to see these yeah. letters." And um, he ended up joining the pro Freudian camp. But yeah, that's you. You really see just how twisted and dark Young allowed himself to become in pursuit of this aim. Um, you know, for quote unquote rebirth, but. <laughs> And now we really kind of see the the fruits of it today, uh, in terms of the the new age movement and this hedonistic uh, gender plurality, uh, just anti objective approach to the world, where just kind of anything goes. It's all just about power. Nothing you say is, you know, there's no such thing as truth. It's all just, you know, it's really definitely fed into that postmodern ethic. Well, I would just add that. Uh... You know, while a lot of his ideas are very attractive, especially for someone who wants to get to the bottom of things, uh, you know, just the whole idea of, of becoming individuated, of, uh, of, of, of um, growing to such a point that you're integrated and, and, and functioning and autonomous and, and, uh, and doing those things that are true to your higher nature, if you want to say that. I mean, all of these are, are very kind of... Um, they're nice sentiments, you know, they're, they're who, who doesn't want those things for themselves as stated. Uh, but you know, the way you described it right now, Corey, is very much, um, what I was thinking the other day when I was reading all this, and that is that, uh, the, the trap of falling into the subjectivity of, of all of the processes, uh, that Jung said, you know, uh, as an example of, you know, this is how I did it and you can do it too. 
Um, and Harrison, you said before that he, you know, even if he qualified the dangers uh, or qualified these experiences with the danger of losing your mind, of, of, of dying, um, it seems that he, he was still putting it out there in such a way so as to, you know, encourage people to join him in his cadre of, of psychoanalysts and engage this process. I mean, you know, what else... Uh, what else would it be there for but but to do that and to grow his his group um, so yeah i you know a lot of this is uh it it enters the realm of the very highly subjective uh, used the term before Harrison about you know entering the forest without being protected i'm paraphrasing um, there are dangers to be wary of there are things uh in the unseen to be uh, to be on the watch for. Uh, none of this seemed to have entered uh, the equation in an objective way for Jung. Um, and uh, it, unfortunately, it, his, his whole body of work, and I mean, the guy was prolific. Uh, so, you know, you go to a bookstore and you see the 10 or 12 or 15 volumes of, of his collective works and the big red book which is so impressive and and the you know the impression is oh my god this guy really thought everything through and and he really had a grasp on things and look at his following and now there's a whole uh movement of of jungian therapists not just therapists but jungian therapists i'm a jungian uh that have um you know who knows how many of of his ideas have been uh, have been propagated that um, I've never been into Jungian therapy, and I'm uh, frankly, you know, uh, I haven't read that much of Jung, but uh, it, it does seem as though uh, it, the the infrastructure of Jungian thought, the, the volumes, the, the Jungian therapy, his reputation, his cult of personality, uh, all of these things have have had a, a kind of a, a life force of its own after he's, uh, after he died in, in uh, 61. Um, so, uh, yeah, his, I, I guess it's a, it's a real question as to how much of his work has, has affected Western culture and thinking in ways that haven't been, uh, so apparent, uh, that haven't been so obvious. Um, Corey, you mentioned a little bit ago about Nazi Germany. Uh, Peter Lavenda's got a book on Holy Alliance, which uh, documents the amount of uh, esoteric, mystical, and occult organizations that were popping up and had actually uh, been in vogue and and engaged in uh, in the in the the nineteen teens, in the twenties, and even the thirties. Um, so. It just seems to me as though, you know, if, if, if all of these esoteric, you know, pan-German Aryan values uh, were, um, were kind of thought about and these rituals were engaged in, uh, in support of a, of a country that would create a Hitler and a, and a, and a Nazi movement, that on a much subtler level, uh, Jung took a lot of these ideas, um, the Volkish uh, uh, ideas of, of the 1800s and, and, and earlier, 
and made it into a kind of his own subtle liberal leftist well maybe not leftist but he <laughs> he, he took it he took it in his own direction where it's it's detrimental uh use uh was much more subtle uh in a way uh in in distinct in distinction to or in uh, contrast with uh with the way that the, the nazis had used a lot of these mythological ideas well the <clears throat> i think I've, I've got a few thoughts on just that that whole train of thought i like uh, one thing that jordan peterson says about hitler that a lot of what hitler would do is hitler wasn't necessarily driving the crowd but the crowd was driving hitler and hitler was uh basically listening to what the crowd would tell him well he <clears throat> he'd basically say something judge the crowd's reaction and then if you know if his joke didn't work he'd stop telling that joke and if the joke work worked he'd continue telling it and he'd take it to the next level in a sense hitler was just using the the material available to him so the only reason that there was that uh, that nazism took the form of this uh this aryan master race was because that's the that's the that those were the ideas in vogue at the time um there wasn't aside from the identity politics <clears throat> and possible you know um well there's possible kind of like esoteric kind of occult stuff too but aside from um uh, oh, what was i trying to say basically that that these these theories were all around and they they wouldn't necessarily have led to a hitler hitler capitalized on on what was going on and so like you said Ilan, he he took them or the nazi movement in general took them to an extreme degree to like to in the in the direction of pathocracy whereas young's ideas which were um you know a, a kind of a version of what was just popular at the time and what any kind of academic would have would have accepted as real because the racial racial theories like those were just um that was the the mainstream science of the day um he took them in a slightly more subtle direction so when we talk about the the effect that that jungian thought has had on on culture i think it is a very s subtle effect and i think i think well actually i think that probably the the one um the one good thing Jung did was write his books in code so that the the actual like all all those crazy experiences no one would actually have them or have any idea that they were going on if they weren't you know involved in his inner circle or you know from his his uh or or in the inner circles of any of his actual um <clears throat> students basically because he because what what young essentially created was a mystery religion and what's a mystery religion is mysterious outsiders don't know what goes on on the inside it's deliberately kept secret so if you're not part of the club you know good for you basically because you're you're relatively safe because you're not part of the club if what the club is doing is kind of uh shady in nature so all all the the the, the all that the general public has are his actual works which are relatively tame compared to what he was actually doing with the people he was personally involved with so if anything that's a it's a good thing that 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 it worked out that way and that he did create a mystery cult as opposed to laying it all out there and having the same um the same level of popularity um without the mysterious secretive element to it so what we ended up getting i think like the only things that i can really um that i can see at the at the time you know i'm going to i'm going to be doing more research on this and i'm going to be doing more doing more reading to to see you know to see what i can see um 
but the the one that jumps out at me now is the like this whole anima animus thing now i, I want to get to that but to, to preface like everyone has an idea of what the anima and animus are right it's well there are multiple ideas but probably not everyone <laughs> well i think most it, it's in the pop it's in pop culture like it's a you know um not having read any of Jung's work or even any books by Jungians, I'd heard of anima, you know, what your anima is. And basically, and even then without the words, you have the, the kind of watered down version of, um, you know, the, of the feminine, the, the feminine aspect of, of men and the masculine aspect of women. And basically that it's a, it can be a good thing to, to balance those out. And, um, like for men to, 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 it sounds stupid, but you know, get in touch with their feminine side and women to get in touch with their masculine side, and arguably that's a good thing. You know, in in like careers, women need to ask, access a bit of their masculine nature in order to to be um, um, what's the word? Not dominant, but um, assertive mm -hmm. enough to to you know to get ahead in the in an environment that requires assertion and. Um, men arguably need to get in touch with a bit of their feminine side. For example, when they have children, um, they have to be masculine, of course, they have to be fathers, but there needs to be a, a compassionate element there as well. So, I mean, arguably on the, on the, um, just the pop psychology level, the, the idea makes sense and there's something to it, but there are at least two things that are surprising about what, what Jung actually thought about the anima and animus, like, um, like I mentioned um, earlier in the show, he would actually have conversations with his anima. She took on a an autonomous personality form where he would even be talking in her voice, like in a high falsetto, and be carrying out conversations. He was basically channeling his anima, and she took the form as an, of an autonomous being. And I think in his visions, she was actually the, the, the woman that I mentioned in his vision at the very top of the show, um, Salome, who 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 told him that he was the Christ and um but on the other hand there's I also mentioned that sex role reversal thing and there's this idea that is in a lot of Jung's works of the union of opposites and there are two directions we can go with that one of course is the 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 union of the masculine and the feminine and um I think that human nature is um um plastic enough that uh, a small suggestion can have a big effect, and I wouldn't be surprised if that you know that, that that idea, and just trickling through the the meme space would be enough to to facilitate that what you know what we see currently with the um, you know the levels of gender dysphoria going on and um, and all of the um, kind of gender philosophy. Now I don't I don't think that there's much of a direct a direct link between um, Jung and the gender theorists. There may be, but it's it's if if there is, it's not obvious, and it's not um, it's not um, it's not used as any kind of backing by by these people. Like they they don't cite Young at all. I mean, they just have their ideas. If there is a Jungian influence, they're probably the vast majority of them aren't even aware of it. Um, but the other direction that this whole union of opposites thing goes can go in is one that I was kind of getting to earlier when I was talking about his whole technique. And his method, and you know, his lack of preparation, his lack of caution, and his lack of uh, just even the the notion that that um, what he's doing might be dangerous, and that so this, um, but also with the whole auto gross thing. So this union of opposites, you have this union of good and evil, 
where um, the purpose of an initiation of, uh, of a psychoanalysis is to break down the old personality, which is arguably a good thing, or at least it can be a good thing, because there's no growth without, um, you know, the death of what has come before, um, without you know, breaking down that, that stasis, that, that previous personality, in order for something new to come about. There's no growth, basically, without that kind of process. But what, you, what we see with Jung, um, it's like, um, it's, it's as if it's not a positive disintegration, but a, but a negative disintegration and reintegration. Because um, what basically happens in that disintegrative state is that it, it becomes a totally relativized state where there is no good and evil. And I mean, Jung has even written words to that effect, and, and you know, they're in Noel's book. And that was basically Gross's philosophy, where you break down the personality, you get rid of your old notions of good and evil. And again, that can be a good thing, because sometimes in a lot of people's lives, they'll think one way, which is wrong. They'll think something's good when it's bad or vice versa. And they need to kind of go through a, a painful process of disillusionment in order to get their thoughts together and to, and to, to re reappraise and reassess their values and thereby adopt a new um, you know, hierarchy of values. Um, but with, with Jungianism, it seems like you break that down, you get rid of, you, 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 you know, destroy your previous notions of, of good and evil, but what do you, what do you replace it with? With young, like you mentioned, Corey, it's back to this basic, um, you know, barbarian level of uh, of animal nature. Well, of course, young thought that in the initiation, what broke down was uh, was your animal nature, but he had a different idea of what the animal nature was and what came after it. So, this comes back to his ideas about polygamy, because one of the things that he um, that like Gross thought was that. Um, polygamy, so getting, so going against your repressions, going against the societal, um, in a, uh, society, societal rules of sexuality, and you know, getting in touch with the, that primal nature. For for these guys, that would that process. It was like a magical process. It would unleash the ancient creative energy, and um, to to the point where, like, this was part of Jung's philosophy, where he would recommend. Um, polygamy to his male patients. He'd say, well, you just need to, you know, and, he, and he'd recommend it to the women and and uh, and write it off to the women as, well, if it was themselves, he'd recommend it. If it was their husbands, he'd say, well, you just have to, you know, that's just the way, that's just the way it is. You've got to, you got to let this happen because that's just the natural, the, the best state of humanity. Um, and it was, um, it along well, I don't know if it was necessary. The individuation process, like that encounter with the unconscious, was necessary. Um, but I haven't seen enough to know that if I, if, I, if Young thought it was necessary for everyone, um, not sure about that. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But um, maybe because we're going to end the show pretty quick, um, we may. I think we might come back to to Young next week too or at least we'll talk about a bit about him and then move on to some related topic but well harrison i'd just like to add one kind of anecdotal thing to uh to w what you just said and, and that is um in the late 60s in the u.s in particular there was this uh you know the summer of love a culture of free love having sex with anyone you want uh experimenting with drugs with quote-unquote spirituality and it seems to me that 
if uh, there there was, if if Jung planted the seeds of this, um, I guess he would call it uh, um, uh, kind of pan um, pansexuality, pansexuality, <laughs> and and <laughs> you know. It, George Harrison of the Beatles had, had once gone to uh, hate Ashbury in San Francisco at the height of this. And, uh, you know, th there's no one more kind of open-minded than, than uh, Harrison um, in looking at uh, Eastern religion, at e experimentation with drugs. And he saw what was going on and he was disgusted with it. Um, so it seems to me that... Uh, it's at least possible to consider that Jung had planted the seeds of these ideas where, you know, free thinking, open-mindedness, spiritual connection, free love, uh, experimentation with drugs. Uh, and I could be, I could be taking it a bit far, but at the very least, it might be a kind of cultural example of what that looks like. Yeah. Um, regardless of his direct influence, it's like, that's what, that's the, the manifestation of it. Yes. So I just wanted yeah. to add that in there. Yeah, you. It's it's hard. I mean, I don't want to argue that Young caused, you know, the postmodern movement or anything, but he definitely he, that was his aim uh, was to attack, uh, well, not necessarily to attack Christianity, but to undermine the the, the values, if you want to say Christian values uh, that you know Western civilization has been you know drawing on for the past however many thousand thousand years or so and you know so that was his aim and he had connections uh to powerful people uh like john d rockefeller's daughter got analyzed by young and don't ended up donating you know what was it in i think richard knoll says that it was something like you know two million dollars in 1997 uh figures to to young as well as getting all of his works translated, spending copious amounts of money to get his works translated into English. And her husband was proselytized by Jung, and they, you know, that's just, you know, probably a, you could maybe say that that was like a tip of the iceberg. They could have had an effect that, you know, spread throughout the upper echelons of power. But um, like what we touched on in previous shows is just the... The kind of reversion that Jung represented it, and that that force in its in and of itself represents in the world, because you can maybe say that Jung is like a window into that. He's you mm -hmm. can see when you analyze his real life, you see uh, he was like a window into it that kind of burst forth, you know, and and just magnified it if that much more in the in the world. But that that force um, was you know rampant in. You know, pre-Christian eras. That was a you know that if that was like our religion, it wasn't you know positive. It was fairly you know Dionysiac and and, and crazy, but and it wasn't constructive. Yeah, that and I think that's you know it was the order that our society is built on um, required that sort of that that Christian mythos. You know, that Christian spirit of truth and sacrifice that had lasted for, you know, however many years that led, you know, that kind of nurtured the the growth of science and the growth of philosophy and the, and the yearning to discover the truth um, that are the noblest things in our civilization, that are the greatest, not the, you know, the, the worst things that we need to get rid of, but, you know, so obviously there's, 
horrors uh, conducted in the name of religion, but there's also people influenced by religion that went on to discover, make massive discoveries, technological, scientific, you know, that, that have led us to the point that we are today. Um, and, you know, that those, those forces that uh, are, you know, the anti-Christian, anti-science, anti-objective reality, I think Jung really magnified them um, and to his followers, uh, you know, just gave them a voice to speak directly to his followers, so to speak. And they probably did have a, a fairly big impact on the world, I imagine, through their, their relationships. He also analyzed Alan Dulles's wife. Oh, yeah, that's true. Um, on, on what you just said, Corey, let me, uh, let me catch my, my thought again. Um, oh, I lost it. It, it descended into the underworld <laughs> to be sacrificed. Um, oh, yeah, what I was going to say is that I think that Jung was kind of, he's kind of like a, a politician, because what politicians do is that they, they decide on a policy without knowing if it's going to work. Well, they identify a problem. Oftentimes the problem doesn't exist, but oftentimes the, the problem does exist. And then they decide what the solution is going to be, and they implement the solution without knowing if it's going to work. And rarely does it actually work. And then politicians, of course, because they don't have skin in the game, they don't usually face consequences for their actual errors. Um, you know, it's usually something totally unrelated to their actual job performance. But what Young did, he did identify um, a problem. And I think that the, and the, pr the problem was there. And I think that's the reason for, that there was the whole... Um, um, this whole revival in the like the 19th century and early 20th century in, in Germany for looking for something new, basically, because there was something stale and corrupt and um, like ossified about the about the church, for instance. Um, and you know we can see that today too, where if you look at the actual church, and what I mean by the church is the the big institutional. Um, you know, Christian organizations where they don't have a lot going for them. Um, they do have something going for them, but the criticisms of them are valid. And, well, except for that Young's solution was then like a totally wrong-headed solution. Um, he said at one point that the, the renewal, the cultural renewal could only come from within Christianity, and he was right about that. But that, but he, he didn't really mean what it seems like he he meant from that. You know, like you you've made clear, Corey. He was really about about getting to something primal, like beneath Christianity. Um, if anything, just kind of um, using maybe some Christian imagery and, and language to kind of make the ideas palatable. But um, but he wasn't interested in um, in renewing society from from well from from within you know from within that society he was interested in going to to it like a, a deeper uh, well arguably a deeper level what he perceived as a deeper level and and then kind of like you know getting rid of well essentially throwing some of the baby out with the bathwater um through the the rejection of the the current you know civilizational model and um whereas like we mentioned Collingwood the other you know, a week or two ago, or both. And what he has to say about history and progress is very apropos, I think, in this, in that any progress has to come from, it has to be like a rearrangement of, of, the, of the present 
using elements of the present, only getting rid of those elements that are not useful anymore, but keeping all of those ones that have been, that, that worked, basically. Jung didn't have an idea of what actually worked. Um, he hadn't, I don't think that he had adequately thought through um, and analyzed current society, you know, of his time to be able to see what was necessary to keep and what wasn't. And instead, he went in this really strange direction to, to unleash the, this, this kind of like primal savage energies um, that probably wasn't the, wasn't the best choice, you know, wasn't the wisest decision. He chose poorly, as uh, one of my heroes would say. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I just wanted to take that opportunity to kind of juxtapose his approach to life, um, to the problems of society with Jordan Peterson's, mm -hmm. because they're so stark, so different. Yeah. I mean, you don't hear Jordan Peterson saying, okay, now lie down on the couch, close your eyes, pretend that you're a right. lion-headed god, now go fly to the seventh gate, now, right. you know, when you get to the seventh gate, take a right, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. No, his, his approach is very practical mm -hmm. you know and that's that's the, i think the biggest difference is that you know people like young um and what they offer is uh is an escape it's it's not it's not practical it doesn't give anything really fundamentally good if uh, to other people if it does it's only by you know accident um but you know like this whole magician sorcerer type you know mm -hmm. way of approaching life is it is for, you know, some people, that's their calling, that's their shtick. Um, but, you know, for the majority of mankind, you know, for people who want to live a successful life, who want to, you know, enjoy um, the time that we have here with integrity, that, that, you know, you look at Jordan Peterson and he tells you to clean your room. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. That's it. And then, you know, why, why didn't Carl Jung just tell everybody to clean their room? <laughs> Exactly. He could have. <laughs> yeah, you, Peterson is saying start where you are, uh, improve your life in the most basic ways, and stop trying to you know Im improve the world in this wholesale knock everything down to to start a new uh, fantasy, uh, which is which is crucial and and which is uh, you know as we've been talking about one of the one of the big problems of our time, and. Um, and that's pretty much exactly what Jung wanted to do with his elite group of Aryan, you know, uh, Jungians. Uh, he wanted to, uh, like you were saying earlier, Harrison. He, he didn't want to. He didn't want to work with existing structures. He he wanted to. Uh, it seems, uh, you know, start something almost completely different, uh, according to his own, you know, idea of how things should be. Um, it's interesting to note that he was also, uh, you know, had statements that, that Jews couldn't be part of his group, or, or if they were, then then they could only be a minimal percentage, or, or he would refer them to uh, Adler and and uh, Freud, uh, because they were Jewish, and and the and that type of uh, and that type of of analysis and and growth could only really benefit them if they went to a Jewish. Um, Analyst. I mean, how how ass backwards is that? I I don't know. It, it I do know. It's it's pretty bad. Um, so yeah, that there was a, a bit of elitism on the part of of Jung, wanting to make the world into his own image uh, to some degree, um, and uh, and and the hubris and arrogance that's implied in that, I think, is um, is very dangerous, and and maybe also. 
one of his legacies among people uh, on the left who, you know, the other day I was reading an article uh, by a radical feminist who said, you know, only vote for, only vote for a feminist for, for politics. We don't need men and we're entitled to hate men. I mean, it's such a myopic vision uh, to, to see everything out of the uh, political ideology uh, that you've chosen to identify with. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I guess that, that is something uh, in, a, in, a, in a tiny way, or maybe not so tiny a way, that, that these uh, uh, leftist ideologues have in common with, uh, with Jung. It's wanting to tear things down and, and recreate things in, uh, in their own uh, self-aggrandizing uh, image. All right, and on that note, we're going to end for today. Um, we'll be back next week to, I think, get a bit deeper into some of these topics. We'll take it in a few other directions. I think maybe we'll look at the savage en energies of the Hellenistic mystery cults a bit, and um, maybe some more on maybe what psychotherapy should actually look like, and maybe a better approach to personality development. We'll see about that. Um, but anyways, thanks, guys. Thanks, Len. Thanks, Corey. And thanks to all our listeners. Um, we'll see you next week. So everyone take care. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.